drug companies and alas, too many politicians have something in common. And I'm not talking here about the money the drug companies actually spend to buy politicians. And that happens all the time. I'm looking at you, Cory Booker. I mean this in this way. They both seem to want to impoverish people. And today we're going to look at how drug companies do that by hiding profits around the world and how politicians do that by stiffing regular people who are trying to get a raise even when the people vote to give them that raise. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for September 26th. 2018. This podcast is brought to you in part by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and promotes mass transit. It is also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. And you can hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m. Please do become a small financial supporter because you are the folks that we depend on to keep this podcast going day to day. You can do that at workinglife.org and just click on the Patreon tab. In lots of companies, CEOs and top executives have to engage in a huge amount of cognitive dissonance. And that's certainly true for those CEOs and top executives at drug companies. They have to pretend like they are human beings with a conscience, meaning I guess they don't kick their dogs, while at the same time way down a line that they don't see the end of or they choose to ignore, bodies are piling up. And those are people who have died all around the world because they can't afford to pay for life-saving drugs because it's all about making a buck. It's all about profit for these CEOs. Today, I want to talk about four major pharmaceutical firms, Abbott, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Pfizer. These corporate gangsters are stashing profits in overseas tax havens, a tactic used by the vast majority of big corporations, and my regular listeners know that because we've talked about it on many a podcast. Now, Oxfam has the data on this gang of four. By manipulating the tax system, this gang of four stiffed the U.S. Treasury of $2.3 billion a year, and they also stiff advanced economies of another $1.4 billion per year. That's about $3.7 billion per year in total. But Oxfam goes further and adds an important data point that escapes this discussion on overseas tax shelters. The tax maneuvering and hiding of profits by the gang of four, these four major pharmaceutical firms, stiffs governments of mostly poor and developing countries of an estimated $112 million every year. And that's money that could be spent on vaccines, midwives, or rural clinics, as Oxfam notes in a very important report that it's just issued. David K. Johnston, an an investigative journalist who has been on this program several times, says, and he has a book that carries the title, All This Maneuvering is perfectly legal, courtesy of mammoth lobbying campaigns 
the most actually of any industry in terms of the dollars that they spend. And those lobbying campaigns effectively give the Gang of Four the legal tools to price gouge and tax dodge. In developing countries, the Gang of Four uses the U.S. government to carry its water. And it does that through those bad trade deals that go back to NAFTA and the TPP, the more recent trade deal that many of you have probably been engaged in fighting to defeat. Those trade deals have protections for drug companies, their patents, that end up keeping prices high. And then in addition, in those developing countries, they win sweetheart deals, partly by buying off corrupt politicians, that lower corporate taxes in developing countries and divert scarce public health dollars to pay for the high-priced drugs that these companies spread, especially the Gang of Four. Now, here to talk more about what Oxfam has found is Robbie Silverman, a senior advisor for Oxfam, America's private sector department. And in this policy area, Robbie, as in many policy areas, I always am caught or reflecting on this moment in the movie in Casablanca, when Captain Renault says, and you're probably familiar with this, I'm shocked, shocked to find gambling going on in here. And that was my reaction when I read your amazing report. I'm shocked, shocked to find that drug companies are doing something untoward and manipulating the system so that it risks actually people's health. But let's dig into this. And the first thing I think we should do for my listeners is talk how they actually do this. How do they avoid paying taxes and shift money in various international tax havens? Sure. So first, Jonathan, thanks for for speaking with me. Um, You know, I think you're right in that we suspected when we started this research trying to uncover drug company tax dodging that, you know, there's certainly been a lot of smoke. And so we weren't surprised that we did, you know, find real indications that these companies are avoiding quite large amounts of tax. But what was interesting is how clear and consistent the pattern was that we found. So what we did is we basically mapped U.S. pharma company operations around the world. And so we saw where they had their subsidiaries. And you know these huge drug companies have hundreds and hundreds of subsidiaries in dozens and dozens of countries all around the world. And we tried to get as much data as we could about their operations in rich countries, in poor countries, in tax havens, every country that we could. And one big stumbling block that we ran into is just the amount of secrecy and opacity that exists right now in the tax system. And so out of the dozens of countries where we knew these pharma companies had subsidiaries, we were really only able to find data for seven developing countries four tax havens, and eight advanced economies. And what we found is that basically in either rich or poor countries, pharma companies were reporting very small profit margins, single digits. The one exception to that were, of course, the tax havens, where they were, they were reporting astronomically high profit margins, 30% or even more. And so to us, this was a pretty clear sign that these companies were, in fact, shifting profits from basically every market where they sell their products into tax havens. And they do that 
to lower their tax rate. And so this is costing basically every country massive amounts of money. And that's true for poor countries and rich countries. And, you know, I think, as you all know, governments desperately need those resources to invest in things like hospitals and essential medicines for the health and well-being of their citizens. So let's underscore a couple of things. First of all, when we say they ship these profits, it's not as if they put the money in big bales and they put it on some container in a container and ship it to another country. It's basically a transaction that happens electronically in some spreadsheet in some bank. So it's all done. And that probably contributes to the secrecy. It's hard to actually track this because it's all done under the radar. And the second thing that I wanted you to explain is how do they actually do this? And let's get into the the point that I think is clear and is not just done by drug companies, but by Apple Corporation, by Nike. They shift where they basically domicile some patent or some invention or some drug. That's exactly right. And one of the things that links big drug companies with the big tech companies is the fact that almost the entire value of those companies resides in the intellectual property that they hold. And as you noted, you know these companies can put that intellectual property essentially wherever they want in the world and run the company's profits through that location. And somehow, by some incredible coincidence, it does seem like those that IP ends up in very low tax jurisdictions. And so that basically means that you know when drug companies sell medicines really almost anywhere in the world, they can ascribe the value of that transaction to very low tax jurisdictions. And that dramatically decreases the amount of tax that they pay. And that really hurts all of us. Uh, and so that is essentially what we were trying to uncover to demonstrate that there really is this clear and consistent pattern of these pharma companies just reporting massive, massive profits in tax havens and very low profits everywhere else. So just to underscore this, let's say they come up with a drug and they invent a drug or they research the drug in Massachusetts or some other state in the, in the United States. What they do then is they take the actual licensing of the drug the, where the actual drug is domiciled and they'll put it in the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands or whatever the low tax haven is. And they'll say that every time a dollar is made on this drug, it goes through this country, not through, say, Massachusetts. That's exactly right. And again, here, the opacity that is pervasive in the system and that is very, very intentional is a huge stumbling block to really understanding how this actually works. And that, you know, very often drug registrations and licensing goes to, you know, a shell company that then may be owned by another shell company that then is owned by yet another shell company. And so following the the paper trail is very, very challenging. And that's certainly something that we ran into. You know, you mentioned, you know, Bermuda and the Cayman Islands. And we know that, that the pharma companies that we studied have operations in those places. And we couldn't uncover any information at all because of the secrecy that exists in those jurisdictions. So the four tax havens where we were able to get data were Belgium, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Singapore. And that's not an accident because you know the EU has mandated greater levels of transparency than some of those sort of you know um, Caribbean uh, tax havens like Bermuda or the Cayman Islands. And so you know we were it was next to impossible to find any financial information at all about pharma operations or really any company company operations in tax havens like the Cayman Islands 
or the British Virgin Islands or Bermuda. And that is that's that's a real problem um, to fully understand the scope of the problem that we're trying to address. So you're just scratching the surface, likely, in terms of the money that's being hidden and sheltered. And let's um, be clear, when you and I use the term sheltered and tax dodge, the reality is, and I channel now the great investigative journalist David K. Johnston, who wrote a wonderful book about tax dodging called Perfectly Legal, it is true that what they're doing, and there may be some exceptions where they are breaking the law, most of this is legal under the tax system that they essentially have bought uh, here in the United States. I mean that bought literally, they pay off politicians to pass laws that allow them to do all this. That's exactly right. And so really our research had two tracks. One was to do our best to uncover the scope of the tax dodging that these companies do. And as you rightly noted, you know, we believe the data that we got is really just the tip of the iceberg. But the other was we wanted to do a deep dive into the political influence that these companies wield, both in Washington, D.C. and overseas. And it's you know, precisely because that in many ways, these huge multinational companies are able to literally write the rules under which we all operate, that that sort of rigging of the rules is actually what allows these companies to dodge just massive amounts of tax. And you know, the U.S. tax reform bill that passed at the end of 2017 is a perfect example of that, where you know, that bill was a massive, massive giveaway to incredibly rich and powerful multinational corporations uh, and very wealthy individuals. And you can see how pharma companies were able to directly benefit in, in, in lots and lots of ways, one big one was through the amount of money that they had stashed offshore. Uh, pharma, the pharma industry had the most money stashed offshore, second only to tech. At just the four companies that we looked at, $352 billion. I mean, the numbers are just astronomical. And the tax bill that passed allowed these big pharma companies to bring that money back to the U.S. at hugely reduced rates which is going to save them tens and tens of billions of dollars. And so, you know, I don't think it's an accident that these pharma companies were massive beneficiaries of the tax bill that passed because of the amount that they invest in lobbying. You know, the pharma industry is the biggest lobbyist in D.C. by leaps and bounds. They spend more than $200 million every year. They employ an army of 1,500 lobbyists. That's more than three for every single member of Congress. And listen, these companies get huge return on that investment. I mean, essentially, they invested millions in lobbying and reaped billions in the tax in the tax reform bill that passed. And so, you know, that's very much what we were trying to expose: is how inequalities of political access can lead to sharply increased economic inequality, and that allows you essentially to buy more political access. And so, it really, is this very pervasive cycle that we're trying both to expose and to stop. Now, most of the public perception of this tax bill, and it is true, the GOP tax scam bill, as I call it, was really a Republican bill. But let's be very clear, this kinds of tax dodging and tax shifting has happened for many years, and it's really uh, the fault of both parties. It's a bipartisan failure, and, a, and the drug companies have bought off politicians of both political parties, and that allows me, and to this point, I want to bring in this point that you make in the report, 
and it's in one sentence which underscores the bipartisan nature of this, and that has to do with free trade agreements. And in the report, you write, free trade agreements are another means of influence where the U.S. and EU push for measures that ensure stricter intellectual property rules that limit government's ability to protect public health and lower the price of medicines. And so all the way back to NAFTA, and I actually read NAFTA when it first came out. It's something that I've been following for a long time, these so-called free trade agreements. They're not really about free trade when you look at them. They actually are, are very carefully orchestrated deals that protect industries and especially intellectual property and especially for drug companies. You know, I think that's right. And that we would certainly agree that, you know, there have been massive failures by both parties and many levels of government to fail to rein in corporate tax dodging. You know, the, the tax bill that passed at the end of last year as you noted, you know, was essentially a Republican-only bill. Uh, no Democrat supported it. Um, but tax dodging extends well before that. And as you noted, there are lots of other factors, including free trade agreements, um, that have also had bipartisan support. But you know, we think that tax dodging shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, when governments don't have the resources to invest in schools, in hospitals, in roads, in bridges. I mean, that really hurts all of us. Um, it negatively impacts the economy. Uh, you know, it, it worsens poverty and inequality, which is something that, you know, Oxfam cares a lot about. And so, you know, we think there are a few very simple, really common sense measures that governments can take to address this problem. And it should really start with transparency. You know, what we did is, you know, we ended up going to these dozens of countries and actually employing local researchers who were able to pull financial documents within those countries. We shouldn't sort of have to go on that sort of down all those rabbit holes to get this information. You know, we should have just country by country, very basic level financial reporting where companies need to report how much money they earn, the amount of their profits, the amount of tax that they pay and the number of employees that they have in every jurisdiction where they do business. I mean, that, that is not a very high bar. And we're already seeing some companies starting to do that. But it, that sort of very basic level of transparency is really what we need, even to just get get come to grips with the scope of the actual problem. Is. Yes, you, you like to say it's not a high bar, which I agree with you on a completely logical basis, but it is the basis on which they are able to operate and hide all this stuff. And secrecy among corporations and it, within corporations, that's the way they operate. They don't want their employees to talk about things, so they force them to sign these non-disclosure agreements. It's all about secrecy. So that's the way the corporate world works. I like the idea that you're talking about transparency, but they fight against that tooth and nail. And unfortunately, I think most governments go along with that because they're desperate for these jobs. They're desperate to get the lobbying money in some countries. It's about uh, the corruption among officials. And I thought that one of the things that was really great about your report, I think many of my listeners, many people here in the U.S. are very familiar with how this affects um, Americans in terms of the treasury here, that there's a lot of tax dodging that happens in, in by corporations that rob the treasury of money that you can use for services. But what you guys did was look at what happened abroad in many developing countries and the actual effect on people's health. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So what we wanted to do is exactly what you suggested, which is to demonstrate to people that tax dodging has real impacts 
on people's lives and well-being. And we focus specifically on health um, because, you know, pharma companies sort of portray themselves as, as, as paragons of virtue, as protectors of the public health. And, you know, we wanted to demonstrate that you can't sort of make that claim on the one hand and dodge massive amounts of tax on the other. And so what we did is we used the data that we gathered to try to estimate how much tax these companies are actually dodging. And in developing countries, the estimate that we came up with was excuse me, $112 million every year in just seven countries. And that's enough to buy HPV vaccines for 10 million girls. And HPV is the, the disease that causes cervical cancer. Um, which kills you know massive numbers of women worldwide, and so if we were able to vaccinate these 10 million girls, that would have real uh, positive impacts on the public health in developing countries. And we actually did similar analysis here in the U.S., where our estimate is that these drug companies are dodging 2.3 billion dollars every year in the U.S. alone, and that's enough to to provide healthcare for nearly a million low-income kids here in the U.S. And so, you know, the impacts on real people are profound when companies don't pay their fair share of tax. It hurts public health. And also, you know, it forces ordinary working people to essentially pick up the slack when the Treasury runs runs dry because of corporate tax dodging. And so in addition to transparency, as we wrap up here, our conversation, which we talked about just a minute or two ago, the the other point you want to make is obviously they have to pay their fair share in taxes, which has been a, a fight going back three, four decades at least, where going back to the Reagan years, where essentially corporations increasingly have not paid their fair share of taxes. So what's your sense of how to move forward and how to change that other than at the ballot box? Well, I, said, I, I would point to two things. One is, you know, the companies that we looked at want to be perceived as responsible global corporate citizens. And actually, Johnson & Johnson, which is one of the companies that we studied, has a company credo that they point to all the time in almost all of their public statements. And the Johnson & Johnson company credo actually says, we as a company pledge to pay our fair share of taxes. And so this is a belief that the company publicly espouses. And we basically want to essentially say, you know, our evidence suggests that you're not actually doing that. You need to uphold your own values in terms of paying your fair share. And so I think there are two things that we can do. One is we need to hold companies accountable, you know, particularly companies like the big drug companies that want to be perceived as protectors of the public good. And so we need to call out companies like Johnson & Johnson when they fall short of you know, the, their own statements. And you know, the, these companies make products that we all use um, that very often we need when we're sick. You know, Johnson & Johnson makes Band-Aids. They make Tylenol. They make ChapStick. And so you know, we need to tell Johnson & Johnson that they need to do better and live up to their own values. And secondly, you know, we need to hold public policymakers accountable as well. Um, you know, tax continues to be in the news. It does seem like, you know, amid lots of other scandals, we keep being inundated with corporate tax scandals. I think because of the tax bill that passed at the end of last year, um, it is top of mind for many politicians. And we need to make sure to hold them to account to say that it's not fair for big multinational companies to play by one set of rules 
that they get to write while you know everyday working Americans play by an entirely different set of rules. That's fundamentally unfair. And ultimately, we do need public policy reform, and we do need to hold our policymakers accountable. Guess what, voters? You don't know shit. And because you don't know shit, we, the brilliant politicians, are going to overturn a law that you, the voters, pass democratically at the ballot box. That's essentially the middle finger message that the mayor of Washington, D.C. and some members of the city council are sending to the people of Washington, D.C., Now, here's the story. Tip workers, and that's waiters, bartenders, nail salon workers, barbers, hairstylists, and others, can be paid an hourly rate as low as $2.13 per hour, as long as over the course of a week, they receive an effective hourly wage rate to at least equal the regular minimum wage. The regular minimum wage for tip workers at the federal level, is $2.13, which is completely outrageous. If a worker's tips are inadequate, employers are supposed to, quote-unquote, top off their pay. That is, employers are supposed to raise the worker's base wage for that week just enough to bring their total earnings up to a regular minimum wage income. Now, in D.C., the regular minimum wage, not the tipped minimum wage, is currently $13.25 per hour. And that is going to go up to $15 an hour by July 1st, 2020. The law that raised the regular minimum wage raises the tip minimum wage to $5 an hour by 2020, and that is currently at $3.89 per hour. Now, if all those numbers are confusing to you, I get why. You can't live on that amount, for God's sakes. $3.89 per hour? And a huge number of tip workers work full-time in their jobs. So the voters in the District of Columbia, recognizing that people could not survive on such a low wage, smartly passed something called Initiative 77, and that was in June. And it was a ballot measure that would raise the district's tip minimum wage over the course of eight years until it is equal to the district's regular minimum wage, whatever that happens to be in 2026. Now, that's too slow in my opinion, but it was an initiative passed by the voters. And this is a trend that you can find in eight other states. Those states have passed what is called one fair wage which are laws to make sure tip workers are treated no differently than other workers and receive the same minimum wage as a base wage, regardless of what they make in tips. And then the District of Columbia's mayor, Muriel Bowser, said, oh, the voters didn't understand what they were doing. We may have to repeal the initiative. Say what? 
The voters are too stupid to understand that people need a living wage to survive. The truth is that what is happening is a massive lobbying campaign by the restaurant industry, which would like to just have a bunch of slaves working in their restaurants. And that industry is spreading around a lot of money to get the initiative overturned. So let's dig into this whole sordid story with David Cooper, senior economic analyst with the Economic Policy Institute. And David is the author of a very important study that just came out about the tip minimum wage issue, specifically around the Washington, D.C. initiative. And David, obviously, I'm perhaps most interested in this because I, like probably many of my listeners, once upon a time, in fact, toiled in a restaurant for a couple of years. It was, in fact, some of the good money that I made at the time, and it was a very convenient in relative terms job to have. But still, I often felt that I was being shortchanged. And before we get into the actual numbers, I'm going to ask you, even though your main bread and butter is to be an economist, I want you to put your, if you will, your political hat on and answer me this. How is it that the D.C. Council and the mayor have the gall to essentially attempt to overturn the voters will, because as I said in my introduction to this segment, the voters passed this initiative with 56% of the vote. So give us a sense of what's happening. And you recently attended a hearing. What's the state of play on this? Yeah, so it, it is, again, I'm an economist, so my uh, my political analysis might not be uh, top-notch. But, you know, it it is, I think, unsettling that the council has decided that they're just going to flat-out uh, repeal an initiative that, that passed by a, a large margin. It was a 12-point margin uh, that the, the initiative passed by. And what they've claimed is that voters didn't understand the proposition, they didn't understand the language of the ballot question, and that turnout was was low because it was primary. And so for some reason, that doesn't make it valid, uh, which, which, you know, I think is really is harmful to the democratic process, because it basically says uh, elected representatives can decide which elections are valid and which ones are not. And I don't think we want to head down that road. And more to the point, they're basically saying voters are stupid and we know better. Yeah. But let's look at the reality. I'm, I'm assuming that this has a lot to do with the money, the lobbying money and the power of the National Restaurant Association and employers that is they're putting pressure on these politicians. And sh- I'm shocked, I'm shocked, I'm shocked to hear that politicians don't have a spine and are bending to what employers and essentially potential donors are demanding from them. Yeah, it, in fact, the uh, the group Public Citizen actually put out a report uh, last week that looked at campaign contributions of the groups that are backing the repeal effort, and and these groups put hundreds of thousands of dollars of campaign contributions uh, in the campaign funds for the the mayor and the members of the city council that have been come out publicly uh, for repealing the initiative. So. You know, it's hard not to look at this and think that that money is driving a lot of these decisions. Mm-hmm. And so let's now jump into the issue itself and the numbers, and we'll try to make it as user-friendly as possible. I think the first thing that is worth explaining, and I'll let you do that, is why the hell do we have 
different uh, minimum wages. The typical federal minimum wage, as people know, is $7.25, which is an outrageously low level. And EPI has done a lot of great work about this question that the minimum wage itself has to be much higher. Um, I always remind my listeners that if you took into account productivity uh, over the last 30 years, the minimum wage should be around 20 bucks an hour. And so as it is, the federal minimum wage is a poverty level wage. And Yet we have this even lower wage for so-called tipped workers. And I want to point out one thing you point out in this report. No other country worldwide employs a similar system for service industries. So riff on that a little bit. Yeah, this is a, a, a totally a uniquely American uh, construction here. And it, and to be honest, it's, it's sort of an anachronistic uh, system that that some people say is a is a pro, is a legacy of slavery is a legacy of feudalism um, and you know I don't know the exact history of the tipping system but I can tell you that the way this system came about in the United States at least the the system of having a separate lower minimum wage for tipped workers is when the federal minimum wage uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act which is the the law that establishes the federal minimum wage was amended in the 1960s to expand its coverage to more industries, including service industries. And when they did that, uh, the industry basically was able to get this, this special provision baked into the law that said that workers who regularly and customarily received tips on the job didn't have to get the full minimum wage. They could be paid some lower minimum wage so long as their tips brought them up to the regular minimum wage. And I think you know, it's in, it's important to recognize that at this time, a lot of the workers in the service industries were predominantly people of color, uh, and I think a lot of the opposition for for this law or the opposition to expanding uh, the minimum wage came out of places where there was a lot of racism and, and from a lot of uh, you know po- politicians that uh, maybe weren't expressing uh, that weren't being true. That weren't really, uh, you know, uh, the the best the best folks historically. We, we should say, right? Um, you were being so anyway, you're, you're trying to be nice and diplomatic as an economist. I'm trying as to a, be nice as That's an economist. Right. What you wanted to say is they were racist M- yeah. M- efforts in my language, and they basically that's they didn't care, and they saw. Um, people of color as still slaves of theirs, right. and they basically thought that's what they should be paid, if anything. Yeah, that that if we that basically these people should only get what what the customer deems to give them decides to give them out of the goodness of their heart, which obviously is not a, a fair system. So anyway, that's when the system was created, and the way it was originally established, the the tip minimum wage was set at a percentage of the regular minimum wage. So at the time, it was set at fifty percent of the regular minimum wage. So in other words half of the wage requirement could be made up by tips. Over the years, that percentage varied. It kind of moved around a little bit as the law was was amended further. And then in the 1990s, uh, when the federal minimum wage was raised from 425 to 515, part of that compromise bill that established that increase in the minimum wage froze the federal tip minimum wage where it was at that time. So at the time, it was at 50% of 425, which is 213. And this is actually where Herman Cain uh, cut his teeth. This is where he rose to prominence. He was the head of the National Restaurant Association at the time. You remember Herman Cain from his 999 uh, slogan. 
anyway, he he came about on the on the national scene for for getting this compromise put into the bill that froze the tip minimum wage at two thirteen. So, ever since the early nineties, tipped workers in much of the country couldn't be paid as little as two dollars and thirteen cents per hour by their employer on the assumption that what customers are giving them in tips is going to make up the difference between that and the regular minimum wage. And Herman Cain will be very grateful to you because you've mentioned his name. He's completely been forgotten, rightly so. And so he is drifting way into the backgrounds of history. No one will ever remember him, but your point is really well taken. And let's be clear. Um, the, the way this was set had nothing to do with actual economics. This had to do all with politics right. and greed and a way of robbing people of their wages. And it was simply a reflection of the power of the restaurant industry to pressure and essentially buy off politicians. Yeah, which which again is is pretty much exactly what we're seeing here in D.C. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so let's now dig into the actual specifics. One of the things that struck me when um, I was reading a report is the complexion of the the makeup of restaurant workers in D.C. It's a little bit different than other places in the country and th- therefore would argue, as you'll, you'll explain, that even more so we need this law. So talk about who are the restaurant workers in D.C. as a whole? Sure. So uh, the first thing to note is that, you know, tipped workers is not just restaurant workers. We always think of uh, servers and bartenders, because you know, those are the folks that we interact with most and give tips to. But there are other workers in other occupations, other industries that also are tipped workers and may be paid the lower tip minimum wage. I'm thinking of nail salon workers, parking attendants, uh, hairdressers, barbers, even some taxi cab drivers, and, and one that people don't uh, often realize, gaming service workers. So dealers uh, at casinos can be paid the lower minimum. That's ex- excellent point. Excellent point to, yep. So anyway, the, the, the workforce in D.C. Uh, is about, the overall workforce is about 55 percent people of color, but among the tipped workforce, it's about 70 percent people of color. So tipped workers in D.C. are disproportionately people of color, uh, which is is not entirely true at the national level, but it's it's true here in D.C. The other thing that's unique about D.C.'s tipped workforce is the majority of them are full-time workers. So we often think of tipped workers as you know, college students or somebody who maybe has another job and their tip doc, their tip job is just sort of their part-time gig that they use to supplement their income. Act, well, actors is, DC, you, that, you know, actors and right. people in the entertainment industry are often, at least in certainly New York City, I assume in DC and other places, this is a way partly because of the relative flexibility of the hours. Right. Yeah, precisely. Um, although I should add, I've, I've heard so I worked as a tip worker for for six years myself, and a lot of my my coworkers were teachers wow. who didn't get paid enough God. in their teaching gigs, so they would wait tables on the side. Um, so here in D.C., the majority of these folks are full time workers. About sixty five percent are putting in thirty five hours a week or more in their tipped gigs. So this isn't just a supplemental source of income. This is people's primary job. This is their primary source of income. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the, the tipped workforce in D.C. is that they're disproportionately D.C. residents. So this is, I think, is particularly interesting when you look at what the council is doing overturning 
the, the will of the voters because this is a labor policy that disproportionately impacts the residents of D.C., which isn't always true because so much of the D.C. workforce commutes from other jurisdictions. Oftentimes, the policies they may be enacting you know, are only sort of tangentially affecting actual D.C. residents. That's not true in this case. This is D.C. residents that are going to be impacted most by this decision. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that also is really important to underscore now when you look at who the workers are is when you live just for tips, and I'm glad you corrected me about this, that it isn't just restaurant workers. This is really important. But one of the things that happens is that you are subjected to a specific kind and a very focused kind of both harassment and pressure in your job. And I guess the best way of saying it is for women, it comes down to a lot of sexual harassment. And for all workers, it comes down to just pressure that they feel from supervisors and employers to basically toe the line lest they don't get the very favored shifts. And that's certainly true about restaurant workers, but it's true about all tip workers. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and that, you know, that really gets at the, the problems with this system is because a lot of times you hear, you know, a lot of what I've been hearing when I was testifying on this is it's just an enforcement problem that, that if people aren't making good money uh, as a tipped worker, if their their employer's cheating them and not, you know, make topping off their wages to ensure that they're getting at least the minimum wage from their tips, then that's an enforcement challenge and we just need to change our enforcement practices. Now, we certainly need to change our enforcement practices and strengthen uh, those laws, but the tipping system creates up these creates these really terrible incentives that you're you're getting at that basically because the majority of someone's income comes from tips, they have to do whatever it takes to ensure that they're getting the best tip. And that sets them up for tolerating all kinds of abuse, whether it be at the hands of a customer, uh, at the hands of a manager. It also forces them to, to vie for schedules, to compete with each other for the best tables, for the best sections in the restaurant, for the best schedule that gives them all the Friday and Saturday nights when there's going to be the, the largest number of parties. And when you have that sort of competition, there's very little collaboration. Workers are, you know, have to be competing with each other, and and again tolerating uh, behavior that that they probably shouldn't have to tolerate on the job. Uh, you know, I I often say that imagine a young waitress who uh, is getting harassed on the job, or isn't getting paid enough uh, in tips, and her employer is not topping her off. Can you really expect that person? Uh, to go to her supervisor, who's the person that's setting her schedule, that's determining what shifts she's going to get, determining what tables she's going to get, and tell that person, you know, you 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 screwed me. You didn't you didn't pay me enough. You need to pay me more money. I mean, how is that going to land? How, you know, is, is she really going to be able to do that to police her employer to ensure that she's being compensated fairly? I, I don't think so. I don't think it's realistic that, that we should be putting people in that position. And as you were talking, one of the things that just popped into my mind, and you don't address it necessarily in the study, that's not because uh, it's not important what I'm about to ask, which is unionization. And I, I'm wondering whether just because you know this territory so well, if you could um, venture a guess that um, some of this harassment is probably reduced or it's different in settings where in tip workers are unionized. Now, that doesn't happen a lot 
in most restaurant settings. It is probably more common, for example, in Las Vegas. We talked about right. the gambling industry, which is highly unionized. So I'm wondering if you could just venture a guess whether, partly because this is a very lowly unionized industry, is there a difference when somebody does have union rights? Oh, sure. I mean, when, when you have a union, you have a mechanism by which to, to address bad behavior. Uh, you're not on your own. You can talk to your, you know, your union steward. Uh, you can get the union behind you to, uh, to figure, you know, to, to get at the source of the problem. If you're just a, a tipped worker, you know, without a union, you're really at the whims of, of your supervisors. Your, your income is at the whims of the customers. And, uh, and, and, you know, you're just not going to have the sort of bargaining power that would allow you to, to stand up for your rights. Now, it's interesting you mentioned workers in Las Vegas. I, sh I should note that Nevada is one of the seven states where tipped workers cannot be paid uh, a lower minimum wage uh, when they receive tips. And in Nevada, tipped workers get the full regular minimum wage plus tips on top of that. And, and I think that that's one of the reasons why in states like Nevada, tipped workers tend to earn more money uh, and have significantly lower poverty rates than their counterparts in places where they can be paid that lower tip minimum wage. And my guess is that that's simply about power, that in Nevada and the other states that uh, do have that um, regulation, certainly Nevada, unions are very, very powerful, very influential, and they were right. probably able to argue on behalf of people, their members principally, but for all people, all tip workers, and get that kind of legislation passed. This is about, you know, power and political power. So you mentioned this, you touched on this. So let's dig right into this and uh, spend a, little, a couple of minutes on this question. Compare the wages, the incomes, and the poverty rates of tip workers compared to the non-tip workers in D.C. or generally. Sure. So, you know, We've done research on this question before, looking at tipped workers in states uh, that we call one fair wage states. So in other words, these are states where tipped workers get the regular minimum wage, regardless of, of their tips, compared to workers in those states where they can get as low as 213 an hour. Uh, and and the, the data are very clear that the workers in the one fair wage states tend to earn more per hour than their counterparts in the 213 states and have poverty rates that are significantly lower. So just to put some numbers on it, on average in the states where tipped workers get the regular minimum wage before tips, servers and bartenders in those states earn 20% more per hour than their counterparts in the states where they're getting 213 an hour before tips. So that's a pretty significant difference. Now for DC, you know, when when the initiative first uh, started being debated, when folks first started talking about it, we presented this research. I talked about this research in various venues. EPI published uh, a quick report just pointing to that research saying, you know, this is this is unambiguously going to help the tip workforce in D.C. because we know that tip workers do better uh, in the places where they get the regular minimum wage before tips. And the response that we heard from opponents was, well, that's state-level research. It doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to a city like D.C. D.C. is different. You can't just compare uh, us to what you observe and happening in states, which is kind of a, a dumb argument if you ask me. But nevertheless, we went ahead and did the research to look at uh, wages for tipped workers in D.C. compared to two other cities that are one fair wage cities that have high minimum wages like D.C. And the cities we looked at were, were San Francisco and Seattle. And I was actually really surprised to see, well, not surprised, but surprised at how consistent 
the story was that if you look at the wages of servers and bartenders in San Francisco, they earn in total base wage plus tips 20% more per hour. It's actually 21% more per hour uh, than servers and bartenders in D.C. And in Seattle, the servers and bartenders there are making 17% more per hour than their counterparts in D.C. So again, we're seeing the exact same phenomenon that we observe at the state level, that in places where tip workers uh, get the regular minimum wage before tips, they take home more money. And and we also see that in the differences in the poverty rates, too. In, in D.C., tipped workers have a poverty rate that's three times the poverty rate of non-tipped workers. In D.C., the, tip, the tipped worker poverty rate is almost 14%. That's compared to a, a non-tipped worker poverty rate of about 4.5%. In San Francisco and Seattle, it's, tipped workers still have higher poverty rates because tipped work generally is, is low-wage work, even in those places. Uh, but there, the, the poverty rate of tipped workers is only double what it is the general population. So, you know, having that stronger base wage, having that paycheck that tipped workers can rely on in those places seems to help mitigate uh, the effects of poverty and prevent folks from slipping into poverty. Now, that would be a good enough reason to have this passed and to have this higher wage. But let's, uh, for the last point I want to chat about, let's just address this. BS argument, bullshit argument on the part of the industry that somehow these higher wages will hurt the industry, will have, you know, restaurants will be closed. I mean, there will be disaster and um, apocalypse. And what makes me think about this is these are the arguments that are always used by employers when we talk about the minimum wage being raised. And I I hearken back to the time in New Jersey when the minimum wage was raised and there's the famous card study that was done which showed that that was just BS, that it wasn't true, that a higher minimum wage did not create these awful economic conditions. So relate that to that point about the disaster that might happen. This is what the industry is arguing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the same arguments we hear every single time any sort of higher wage standard is proposed anywhere. And it's the same argument that they've made for 100 years. That if, if you raise the, the minimum wage, be it the regular minimum wage or the tip minimum wage, it's going to force businesses to close or relocate or lay off staff. Uh, and as you mentioned, there this is, a, this is a question that has been researched in the academic literature exhaustively. Uh, it's probably the most studied topic in labor economics. And the research is just overwhelmingly clear that moderate increases in minimum wages, meaning increases at least of the magnitude that we've done in the past, have never led to any significant effect on employment. In fact, some studies show that increases in minimum wages have led to increases in jobs, small increases in jobs. Some studies have shown that it led to a very small, not statistically significant decrease in jobs. So the debate in the academic literature right now is basically, uh, you know, whether this is a small and, and basically insignificant positive effect or a small and basically insignificant negative effect. Um, for tipped workers, the research has, there hasn't been as much research simply because there haven't been as many places that have made this transition from having uh, a low tip minimum wage to, to eliminating theirs. But there is one study that did look at increases in tip minimum wages. Uh, this was done by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, 
And they found the exact same thing that all this other, this enormous body of literature around regular minimum wages found, that increases in the tip minimum wage seemed to have their intended effect. Namely, it raised the wages of tipped workers with no measurable impact on their employment. So again, the research is pretty clear here that you can lift pay for low-wage workers, and businesses figure out how to adapt. They figure out how to remain profitable. Customers still come. People still tip. The sky doesn't fall. Uh, and, and you know the, the, the truth is, this has been the law of the land. This has been the way that the restaurant industry and other employers of tipped workers have been operating in seven states for at least 20 years. So the idea that businesses in places like D.C. and elsewhere couldn't figure out how to operate in that sort of system just doesn't pass the smell test because people have already been operating this sort of system for decades, and, and, and it's working both for the business owners and for the tipped workers. Now it's time for our robber baron of the week, and he is Ian Reed, the CEO of Pfizer. The company increased Reed's compensation in 2017 to $27.9 million, which was a 61% increase over the year before. And that increase includes a $1.96 million salary, $2.6 million bonus, and $13.1 million in equity awards that are linked to goals, especially the increase of the stock price. He also is getting an $8 million special equity award. Isn't that cute the way they term these nice little awards? And that he will get if the drug maker's average stock return tops 25% for 30 consecutive trading days before the end of 2022. Now, how do you all think the stock will do that? Of course, by stashing more profits overseas, avoiding taxes, and trying to get sweetheart deals in developing countries. All the things we just talked about regarding the Oxfam report. And all of that comes at the expense of regular people because that's robbing the treasuries of countries and jacking up prices on drugs that people need to stay healthy and to just live. And that's why Ian Reed is the robber baron of the week. That'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, David Cooper and Robbie Silverman. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our other sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers, and of course, to all of our modest sponsors, our listeners, and our other supporters. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do all that at workinglife.org. Click on the Patreon tab. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.